it must have been really painful to be a prophet. It must have been really painful to be a faithful prophet like Jeremiah was in the Old Testament. Last time we studied Jeremiah, a whole month ago at the end of July, we said that it must have been really weird to be a prophet like Jeremiah was. To get strange prophetic assignments like being told to buy a flashy bit of clothing and then travel 700 miles round trip, to bury it and then travel 700 miles round trip back again to dig it up and wear it about town just to make a point about how ruined the people of Judah had become. That must have been weird. But even worse than weird, it must have been painful to be a faithful prophet in those days. We've already seen that Jeremiah was at times utterly miserable. Do you remember my anguish, my anguish? How he wept over his people's pain and his people's sins. And he didn't just weep for them, he, he wept for himself. Because it was painful to be a faithful prophet, especially at times of national spiritual decline. At those times when the people of God were not acting like the people of God. We also read back in July how Jeremiah's own neighbors conspired against him. He often felt attacked and alone because he was. And in today's passage, Jeremiah pretty much actually says that he wished he had never been born. Did you ever feel like that? Life had gotten so painful that you wished you'd never been born because you, had been being, you were being faithful to your Lord. And I love that we're told that. Now, I, I hate that Jeremiah had to feel that way, but I love it that the Bible honestly tells it to us. The Bible tells us like it is. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything, including how hard it can be to faithfully follow the Lord. Jeremiah gets real and raw with God in this portion of Holy Scripture. And we need to hear it. But he also goes too far. In this portion of Holy Scripture, the prophet Jeremiah goes too far with his words. And the Lord also tells us that he, that is the Lord, has gone as far as he, the Lord, will go. Judah has gone too far. Jeremiah goes too far. And the Lord will go no further. The Lord is drawing a line. This is quite a provocative little piece of holy writing. I found my title for this message in verse 6 of chapter 15, where the Lord says, quite provocatively, I can no longer show compassion. Whew. Huh. What a thing for the Lord to say. The Lord is saying that in this situation, there is something He cannot do. Now, of course, we know that He can do the impossible. No miracle is too difficult for Yahweh. So this must be a self-limitation that arises from his own perfect nature. It would be wrong for him to show compassion at this point. I can no longer show compassion. 
But the Hebrew is even more provocative because it portrays the Lord as having been worn out and too tired to show this compassion. Some of your English translations bring that out really well. The Christian Standard Bible, the CSB says, I am tired of showing compassion. The English Standard Version says, I am weary of relenting. The old King James says, I am weary with repenting. The updated 2011 NIV says, I am tired of holding back. Now, of course, we also know the Lord does not get tired like we do. This is obviously figurative language, but it's still amazing that the Lord would use this volatile language to describe himself, that he would allow himself to be portrayed like a parent who has reached their limit or like a judge who has reached the end of their patience and has to act in judgment. There'd be no more chances, no more leniency, no more pulling back from delivering the judgment that Judah deserved. For hundreds of years now, the Lord had been patient and long-suffering, giving His people opportunity after opportunity to repent, but they had now reached the point of no return. It would have been wrong for the Lord to pull up now. He says in chapter 15, verse 6, You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding, so I will lay hands on you and destroy you. I can no longer show you compassion. That's really scary to read. It shows us how serious sin is and how serious the Lord is about sin, doesn't it? It's really scary in these two chapters because it comes as a response to some prayers that sound really good. Jeremiah prays some really great sounding prayers in chapter 14 and the Lord basically just answers back, nope. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm done and so is Judah. They're going to be uprooted in the most terrible way. Let's jump back to the beginning of chapter 14, and I'll show you what I mean. Chapter 14, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns. Her cities languish. They wail for the land, and a cry goes up from Jerusalem. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns, but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled, dismayed and despairing. They cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there's no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed and cover their heads. Even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there is no grass. Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights and pant like jackals. Their eyesight fails for lack of pasture. Stop there for a second. Did you get the picture? It's amazing how this fits with our new hide the word verse, Jeremiah 17. And even think about that. No fear of drought. Well, here's a drought. Or perhaps a series of droughts. The Hebrew is actually plural. No water anywhere and the situation is serious. If Palestine does not get any rain, they're in big trouble from the least to the greatest. And Jeremiah knows that this is a judgment upon Judah for their sin. 
The book of Deuteronomy promised droughts like this if they would persist in their rejection of the Lord, and the Lord has sent the drought. They have broken the covenant, and the Lord is withholding the rain, which is a preview of coming detractions. Everybody is suffering. So what do you do when you suffer? You pray, right? Jeremiah prays. Jeremiah prays for help. He prays for compassion. He prays for mercy. And this prayer is a model of repentance and supplication. Look at verse 7. Although our sins testify against us, O Lord, do something for the sake of your name. We're so thirsty. For our backsliding is great. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, it's Savior in times of distress. Why are you like a stranger in the land? Like a traveler who stays only a night. Why are you like a man taken by surprise? Like a warrior powerless to save. You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Is that a good prayer? Yeah, that's a good prayer. I, I mean, it sounds like one of the Psalms to me. He says, he gets a little provocative in there, saying the Lord is acting like a visitor to the promised land instead of a resident and like a hapless, helpless warrior. But he's basically saying the opposite of that. He's saying, don't be like that, Lord. Do something big for us instead. And not that we deserve it. He recognizes their sin and their backsliding. But he asks God to do something big for the sake of his own name, for his renown. And at other times, that's the kind of prayer where you see God show up big time, isn't it? But what does the Lord answer them now? No. Look at verse 10. This is what the Lord says about this people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. That was a great prayer there, Jeremiah. And I'm sure you really meant it. But the people of Judah are not praying it with you. And they don't actually mean it, even if they do mouth the words. I know their hearts, and I know their ways. They greatly love to wander. So the drought will stay. The rain will not fall, and the exile will come. The problem here is not me. It is them. I have three points of application for us all that I want to suggest this morning from these two chapters of God's holy word. And here's the first one. Number one, repent for real while you can. Repent for real while you can. Obviously, there comes a time when there is no more time. And we don't always know when that will be. We can say from our own human perspective, without a word from the Lord, as long as there's life, there's hope. We know the Lord is amazingly gracious and astonishingly patient, astonishingly patient, more than you and I would ever be. But the Bible also says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. That implies that there will be a time when he won't be taking your calls. 
The Apostle Peter says in chapter 3 of his second letter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Don't put off your repentance until someday down the line because that someday may never come. It might be too late. Repent and repent now and repent for real. Because the Lord not only has a line, but He truly sees what is truly in our hearts. You can't fool Him with words or rituals. You can fool me, but you can't fool Him. You can, feel, you can fool most of the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool mom, right? Is that how the saying goes? And all the moms are like, yep, that's right. Well, you also can't fool God. Don't play at repentance. That's what Judah has basically been doing all along. And the Lord basically tells Jeremiah to even stop praying for them. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. They have not really repented, and the time is up. It's just been a show. And so Jeremiah is told to stop praying for compassion for this people. And that was hard for him to do. In fact, he, he doesn't do it. He doesn't stop. He keeps on advocating for them. He, he points out that maybe, maybe they could be excused because they've had some bad leadership. Verse 13, but I said, ah, oh, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them you will not see sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. Is it, is it possible that they could be forgiven or shown leniency because they have been given some bad information? It's the leaders, not the people. The other prophets have been much more optimistic than I have. What's the answer to that? It's also a big fat no. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Yeah, that's a no. And it gives us the second point of application for this morning. Reject the lies you want to believe. Reject the lies that you want to believe. Repent for real while you still can and reject the lies that you want to believe. It's pretty easy to reject the lies you don't want to believe, right? Somebody tells you a big fat whopper and you're like, no, no thank you. When you know something's a lie and it just doesn't work for your life, it doesn't fit into your existing worldview, it's relatively easy to throw it out. The lies that are hard to jettison are those that fit our preconceived notions. They're the lies that, that tell us what we want to hear. The lies that soothe us, soothe us and don't confront us. 
They're the lies that make us feel good about ourselves and all of our choices and fit in with the people who we want to like us. What are some of the lies that you want to believe? Over the last three years, I've had some new success in my battle with the temptation of gluttony. And it was almost all through rejecting lies that I wanted to believe. I need this next bite. I'll be a good boy if I clean my plate. I'll feel better if I get another plateful. If I don't eat this, it will go to waste. Better me than the trash can. That's insidious. I am not a trash can. Why would I act like one? I deserve some more. It wasn't walking everywhere that led to so much success. I was walking before. It was rejecting those lies and others like them. I believed all those lies and I wanted to believe all those lies for decades. And I'm still having to remind myself three years later. What are the lies you want to believe? Not what lies do those other people believe, those people. What lies are you tempted to believe? Peace, peace where there is no peace. It'll be okay where it won't be okay. Must be right. Everybody's doing it where it's not right. The people of Judah should have known better. They should have recognized false prophecy for what it was. The false prophets will be more accountable for what they taught. There's some truth to what Jeremiah says. They will be more accountable. But the people are not off the hook just because they believe something they already wanted to. Verse 15. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them. Yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by sword and famine. And the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. There will be no one to bury them or their wives, their sons or their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. Reject those lies. The Lord does not send lies for you to believe. And lies are deadly. Reject them. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Just because the Lord has obviously reached his righteous limit, it does not mean he takes any delight in saying no to his people and their cries for mercy. He's not like, you reached my line. Let's watch you go. No. What he is about to do is grievous to him. Look at verse 17. Speak this word to them. Let my eyes overflow with tears, night and day without ceasing. For my virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. He's sending the wound. He's sending the blow. He has to watch that happen to his virgin daughter because it's the right thing. 
If I go into the country, I see those slain by the sword. If I go into the city, I see the ravages of famine. Both prophet and priest have gone to a land they know not. They're uprooted. This is no fun for Jeremiah. This is no fun for the Lord. He cares, but he has no other option. This is what is right. And still Jeremiah intercedes for them. Even though he was told not to, he tries again. He prays on behalf of Judah once more. Verse 19, have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hoped for peace, but no good has come. For time of healing, but there's only terror. Oh Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do any of these worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. Mm, man, that's a good prayer, isn't it? Anywhere else in the Bible, 100 years before this, if the king was praying like that, the rain would follow. He hits all the right notes, right? Repentance, covenant, God's glory, the emptiness of idols. They're like scarecrows in a melon patch. They don't bring the rain. Baal, the storm god, is no god. You, Yahweh, are our only hope. Please. Here's the Lord's answer. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. And if they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. Those destined for death, to death. Those for the sword, to the sword. Those for starvation, to starvation. Those for captivity, to captivity. I will send four kinds of destroyers among them, declares the Lord. The sword to kill and the dogs to drag away and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I think that's a no. Judah has gone too far. And the Lord said, he will go no further. Judah's going into exile. Death, sword, starvation, captivity. Death, sword, starvation, captivity. Because Judah has gone too far. It's interesting how he juxtaposes the various notable leaders of Israel here, isn't it? He says that even if Moses and Samuel were asking for this leniency, he wouldn't grant it. Those two were famous for their intercession. Read, Exodus 32 for Moses, and read 1 Samuel 7 for Samuel. So it's not Jeremiah's fault. You didn't do it wrong, Jeremiah. It wasn't like you prayed wrong or you just weren't godly enough. It's not you. Even if Israel's greatest intercessors were arguing the case, Judah would still be going down. And it's because they followed bad thumbs-down kings like Manasseh, jo Josiah's grandpa, the one who led Judah down to the very bottom. Idolatry everywhere. Fortune tellers, mediums. He set up an Asherah pole in the temple. 
and he sacrificed his own son in the fire. 2 Kings 21 says that Manasseh led Judah to sin worse than the Canaanites that had the land before them. They were worse than the Canaanites. If Yahweh does not bring judgment now, he would be unjust himself. So there will be no pity. Verse 5. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? No one. Who will mourn for you? No one. Who will stop to ask how you are? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding, so I will lay hands on you and destroy you. I can no longer show compassion. I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the city gates of the land. I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people, for they have not changed their ways. I will make their widows more numerous than the sand of the sea. At midday, I will bring a destroyer against the mothers of their young men. Suddenly, I will bring down on them anguish and terror. The mother of seven will grow faint and breathe her last. Her son will set while it's still day. She'll be disgraced and humiliated. I'll put the survivors to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. Now we know that the Lord will continue to show compassion to the people of Israel, even in their exile, right? They're still His. And He has good plans for His people, even in captivity. We'll see that when we get to Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you. Those are plans for you in Babylon. And and we know that He's doing things with the remnant, the spiritual Israel within Israel, all the time. There's more to this story than we read in these verses. But we also see that the Lord's justice is perfect and that his timing is perfect and that his patience does have an end. And that makes me think about the cross. Because obviously there comes a time when the Lord must pour out his wrath on the guilty or he's no longer just. Sin is serious. There comes a time when the dam breaks, and rightly so. Judah must go into exile. Jerusalem must be destroyed. And and, and history repeats itself, right? Remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 23? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. And Jerusalem fell again in 70 A.D. Even though the Lord exercises the greatest of patience and the greatest of longing for their repentance, if there is no repentance, there will be judgment. There comes a time when the Lord must pour out His wrath on the guilty. But what if the Lord Himself steps in front of that wrath? What if, what if the Lord absorbs in the person of His Son the condemnation that you and I deserve? What if someone greater than Moses or Samuel stood before the Lord and not only pleaded our case, but pleaded it with the precious blood of the Lamb, like we talked about last week? What if when the Lord says, I can no longer have compassion, He still showed compassion by pouring out His justice on His one and only Son? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish like they deserve but have eternal life. 
That's almost too good to be true, isn't it? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross? If not, I invite you to do so right here and right now today. Don't pretend. Don't just mouth the words or do it for show. Don't do it for me. The Lord knows your heart, but come to him. Rejecting the devil's lies and put your trust in him and him alone. And you will be saved. Now we're just about done, but we're not done yet. I told you at the beginning of this message that Jeremiah goes too far. Judah went too far, and they're going into exile. The Lord says he won't go any further. He's tired of showing compassion. What is this about Jeremiah going too far? Look with me at chapter 15, verse 10. Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth. A man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I have neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone curses me. These are Jeremiah's words. And he's basically pouring out in prayer that it's really painful to be a faithful prophet in Judah right now. He just about wishes that he'd never been born. He doesn't owe anybody any money, and nobody owes him any money, and yet everybody seems to hate him. Like he owes everybody money, and they all owe him money. He's like everybody's enemy. The Lord tells him that he loves him. Verse 11. The Lord said, surely I will deliver you for a good purpose. Surely I will make your enemies plead with you in times of disaster and times of distress. Can a man break iron, iron from the north or bronze? Remember, Jeremiah, I told you I was going to make you like a fortified city. And again, this is a little hard to follow. He switches gears in verses 13 and 14 to remind Judah once again of what is coming for them. Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder. I think he's talking to Judah here. Without charge. Because of all your sins throughout your country, I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for my anger will kindle a fire that will burn against you. And then Jeremiah speaks again about how hard it all is. Verse 15, you understand, O Lord. Remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you had filled me with indignation. So, why is my pain unending? And my wound grievous and incurable? Will you be to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails? Do you feel this pain? He's tired of feeling alone. At the cafeteria at school, he's sitting all by himself. And he's tired of feeling attacked. When the student goes by, they knock their tray onto his back. Oops, sorry. He's tired of feeling like he's done all the right things, but it just keeps on hurting. Can you relate to that? I've done all the right things. Why does it hurt? It's at this point that Jeremiah goes too far. He doesn't go too far by being real with the Lord. It's not that the Lord doesn't want to hear Jeremiah's heart. It's not the fact that he laments. It's not the fact that he's raw in prayer. It's not even the fact that he asks for justice and vengeance instead of mercy and forgiveness on his enemies. 
Though the Lord Jesus would say that that would be even better. It's not that. It's that Jeremiah basically says that the Lord is not coming through. That the Lord is disappointing him. That the Lord is letting Jeremiah down. Jeremiah is throwing a pity party for himself and basically accusing the Lord of being undependable. Listen to verse 18 again. Will you be to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails? You say you're going to do this, but then you don't come through. You say you're the living water, but then you come up dry. You're a drought, Lord. That's going too far. Now, if that's how you feel today, tell the Lord. Jeremiah's not doing the wrong thing by telling him. He's doing the wrong thing by believing it. Be real with the Lord. He knows how you feel anyway. But repent of those feelings. And resist the urge to quit. That's our third and last point this morning. Resist the urge to quit when the going gets rough. Listen to what the Lord says back to Jeremiah. He basically rebukes him. Verse 19. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, now he's talking to Jeremiah. Not Judah, Jeremiah. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. Isn't that interesting? The Lord has told Judah that he can no longer show them compassion. He's tired of relenting because they have not repented. But he also tells Jeremiah that he will show compassion to him if he repents. See, it's not too late for Jeremiah. He has not reached that point of no return. He's just having a bad day. He still needs to repent of these unfaithful words and to not give up or give in. Let this people turn to you. They can repent. But you must not turn to them. Jeremiah, don't budge. I know it's hard. I know you feel attacked. I know you feel alone. I know it feels like you've got unending pain and a wound that is grievous and incurable. But don't let that deter you from your mission. Don't stop being a broken record about the broken covenant. Don't stop being salt and light in our schools. Don't let yourself turn into one of those false prophets that just tells everybody what they want to hear. Don't start peddling lies or simply shut up. Keep on speaking the truth even when it hurts. Do you need to hear that this morning? I'm guessing that everybody heading back to school probably needs to be encouraged on some level to resist the urge to quit on our mission of speaking the truth in love and not capitulating to the spirit of the age and conforming to the many lies that surround us even among those who call themselves Christians. To not throw pity parties for ourselves about how hard it is as faithful Christians, we need to swim upstream, being in the world but not of it. And that's going to be at times very painful. But we know the Lord is not a deceptive brook. He's a stream of living water that will refresh us. He forgives us when we fail. He restores us. He rescues us. And He recommissions us to go back out there and stay faithful. Listen to the last two verses. 
They'll probably sound really familiar if you've been paying attention. Verses 20 and 21. I will make you a wall to these people. A fortified city of bronze. He's talking to Jeremiah. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. Pretty much exactly what the Lord said to Jeremiah in chapter 1. When he sent Jeremiah to be his prophet to Judah in the very first place. Do not budge. Resist the urge to quit. You will be a wall. A fortified wall of bronze. And I will see to it, Jeremiah, that you do not fall. So don't give up. Or give in. Amen? Amen.